Have you ever been around an arrogant person before? Oh, yeah. Okay. Some of you have. You know, I'm talking about the type of person that's always right and they dominate every single conversation. They've always been somewhere cooler than you have and they know more about whatever subject has come up than any other person in the room. This might be the type of person that always stops to check themselves out when they pass the mirror. You know, they got to make sure everything is right. Plus, they like what they see. So why not stop and take a look? Raise your hand if you're sitting next to one of those people today. Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay. Probably too many hands raised here in the moment. I actually like the idea of two people sitting next to each other and both of them raising their hand. They're like, he was describing you. No, he was talking about you. You deserve one another, okay? Hey, today we're going to continue our series called Characters. And what we're doing is we're looking at different individuals from the Bible. We're looking at their stories. We're looking at their, their qualities and characteristics. We're, we're learning what made them so great so that we can emulate their virtues. And then we're uh, looking at the villain. And we're kind of hoping to, to uh, learn from and, and gain from the warning that is their mistakes and their vices. So this morning, we're actually going to look at one of the most arrogant men in the entire Bible. The Bible has some arrogant people in it. And this is one of them. In fact, you could argue he is the most arrogant man in history because it only takes two verses to set him apart as the most prideful, obnoxious, and arrogant guy throughout this entire book. So you got to imagine he's pretty arrogant that he can kind of give himself that status with just two lines in the Bible, but he manages to do it. So this guy is named Lamech and his story is told way at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter number four. So quick show of hands, who's heard of Lamech before? Like three or four of you guys. Okay. Not a ton of you, but some of you definitely have. Uh, if you don't know his story, I think you're really going to appreciate it by the time we get done. However, before we read those two verses that I told you about that just expose how ridiculous this guy really is, we need to read his genealogy. That is like who his parents and grandparents were. Now, like I'm, I'm the first to admit this is the most boring stuff in the Bible. Okay. Normally we skip this. Normally we're like, yeah, that was, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the story. I get it. I'm the same way sometimes when I approach the Bible. How However, in order to understand Lamech's story well, you're going to have to read just a tiny snippet of his family tree, his family history. Now, you're about to hear a whole bunch of names. I'm going to try to pronounce them right, but I might get them wrong. That's cool. No big deal. Uh, one of my professors back in college said, if you just say it with confidence, people believe you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so if I hadn't just told you that I'm not totally sure how to pronounce these names, you would have never known it, but that's okay. Uh, what you need to understand is we read through these names and you're, you're going to be confused. You're going to be like, what? Who are all these people? The only thing you need to know by the time we get done reading the genealogy portion here is that Lamech is the direct descendant, like the great, 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 great grandchild of Cain, the oldest son of Adam and Eve, the first humans in the book of Genesis. Okay. So that's all you need to know. Adam and Eve's great grandson, many times removed. So let's pick up the story here. Genesis chapter number four, verses uh, 17 on down through 24. Of course, they'll be on the screen as they always are. Genesis chapter number four, beginning in verse number 17. The Bible says Cain had sex with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son named Enoch. Then Cain founded a city and he named it Enoch after his son. Enoch had a son who was named Erad. Erad became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushael and Methushael became the father of Lamech. That's the end of the genealogy. It wasn't so bad, was it? All right. Now, Lamech married two women. 
The first was named Ada, and the second was named Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those who raise livestock and live in tents. Tents. (laughs) 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 It's finally happening. Oh, boy. Of course, this is the service that's live streamed. Of course, this is the one. His brother's name was Jubal. (laughs) The first of all who play the harp and the flute, Lamech's other wife, Zilla, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain. He became an expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain had a sister named Nemo. And then one day we pick up in verse 23. This is where we get to the arrogance, the obnoxiousness. This is where Lamech really sets himself apart, okay? One day, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. Mac. All right. The moment somebody starts referring to themselves in the third person, you know they're proud. You know they're arrogant and obnoxious. This is how this, like every Disney villain you've ever seen begins their villainous speech by saying something like this. So we already know just based on how he's framing this thing that he's about to say something that is over the top. He says, ladies, listen to me. I have attacked a man, or I have killed a man who attacked me, the young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 70 times seven times. Oh man, okay, there's a lot to this, and some of it is really obvious, but the ugliest parts of Lamech's character, his arrogance, his obnoxiousness and pride, they're actually sitting just below the surface. And as you dig in and tease out some of the the details of these two verses, man, you start to get a sense that this really was one bad dude. Take, for example, there in verse number 19, we're told that Lamech had two wives, right? Ada and Zilha. Now for us, we're kind of like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, there are lots of people in the Old Testament that had multiple wives, kind of seemed like the thing to do in the ancient world. It doesn't really strike us as surprising that Lamech would have two wives. However, if you were to study this kind of from Genesis 1 all the way through, you know what you find out? Lamech is the very first man that ever took two wives for himself. This is kind of a a new moment in history. This is really early in in the human story. And very quickly, we move from like, no, I don't want one, I want two. And maybe I don't want two, I want six, right? We're we're starting to to stretch and to move forward. Now, can we just pause for a second, talk about polygamy in the Old Testament? Can we do that for just a moment? Uh, I know you were like, well, this isn't where I was expecting a sermon to go, but here we are, okay? It is definitely true that in the Old Testament, many of the marriages marriages were polygamous. That is, the, the men had multiple wives or even women that they weren't married to, but they treated like wives. That word is concubines. I mean, it was a whole crazy mess. In fact, many of the Old Testament patriarchs and the heroes of the Old Testament had multiple wives. And I don't know about you, but that leaves me kind of feeling weird. I'm like, wait, wait a sec. You know, these men were like these paragons and examples, and they were awesome in so many ways. And then they clearly did something that was contrary to to God's design. You know that God's design was never for people to have multiple spouses. That, That was never his design. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter one, chapter two, 
You read that he created Adam and Eve. There was no Adam and Eve and Lilith, all right? You ever heard about Lilith? Lilith didn't show up until like 1500 years AD. She's a medieval invention, all right? There's nothing in the scripture about that. It's not like the church has secretly been hiding this, you know, for all of these millennia. This is something that came up really, really late. No, when you read the scripture, you find out that God's desire and design for people was always one man committed to one woman for life. That is what God wants for his people. That was his desire. And so when we read in the Old Testament about all these examples of people who were following God and yet taking multiple uh, wives for themselves, I want you to know, plain and simple, they were sinning. They were disobeying God's design for his people. Um, You know, the Bible never presents polygamy in a positive light. In fact, like you won't find a single example of it, none whatsoever. In fact, every time we read about a marriage between a man and multiple women, do you know what always happens? Pain, heartache, misery. All right, I'm not making any statements here. I'm just telling you that's what the stories are like. It always ends up hurting, most importantly, the women and their children, but the men suffer a whole lot too, okay? Think about um, stories like Jacob and his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and how like he had a favorite wife and then the not so favorite wife, and that meant when both of those women had children, he tended to favor the kids of his favorite wife and overlook the children from his second wife. It just gets ugly and it creates a terrible family dynamic that ends up playing out through much of the Old Testament. We read stories like Solomon. Oh my gosh, Solomon was the king of Israel. He's the son of David, like David and Goliath David, right? And the Bible tells us that he had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. Um, What? That's nuts, right? I mean, I I don't even comprehend how that's even possible. And yet that's the sort of life that he lived. So what I want you to understand is that in in the Old Testament, particularly, interestingly, there are no examples of polygamy whatsoever in the New Testament. There's no New Testament Christian followers of Christ who ever take multiple wives. It, It just doesn't happen, right? But in the Old Testament, it did. And what I want you to understand is although those stories are very prevalent throughout the Old Testament portion of the scripture, those stories are never celebrated in the Old Testament portion of scripture. I've given you this principle many times before. This will help you understand and interpret the Bible um, no matter where you might be reading. Just because the Bible records it doesn't mean that God endorses it. Are you with me? God is simply telling us what dumb people have done throughout the millennia. He's not saying, now go and do likewise. He's saying, don't follow their mistake. So it is with Lamech. So it is with this particular issue of polygamy. All right. Lamech turns out to be the pioneer of polygamy. He's the guy who came up with this crazy idea. And that reveals something about his character that tells us that he was like a greedy guy, that he was never satisfied. He wanted to take more than he should. He wanted wanted to take more than he might be entitled to. He seems to treat his wife like property. I don't know if you noticed, he was like, you wives of Lamech. You know, it's like that they are, their identity is his wife, not in the fact that they are created in God's image and daughters of the most high. All right. So he treated women this way, but I got to tell you, this isn't just about misogyny. Uh, he really seemed to treat all people with disrespect and disdain. We read in his, in his uh, little speech there that at one point, verse 23, 
he says that he killed a young man who attacked me. He killed the young man who wounded me. Now, on the surface, just first blush reading, this sounds like, okay, well, maybe this was a sort of self-defense situation. You know what I mean? Like maybe some dude came at him and he didn't come correct. And so Lamech had to do what he had to do. He had to defend himself. He used deadly force. And that's just how things go when you, you know, when you bow up at somebody you shouldn't bow up at, right? But when you read this in Hebrew, the original language that this was written in, you get a a sense that things were a lot more sinister than how Lamech makes it sound. So literally in Hebrew, what Lamech says is, I killed a man for bruising me. I killed the boy man for striking me. Okay. When you frame it like this, it's like, oh, wait, are you telling me you killed a teenager, like a young boy, a boy man is the word that he actually uses there. It's not the normal word for man. It's boy man. It's a compound word that is usually used of teenagers or very, very young men. You killed a young man because he bruised you because he struck you. It's like you got into a fist fight with some guy and then you couldn't control yourself and you ended up taking his life as a result of this. Like you get a sense that Lamech has a serious anger management problem. Uh, they, they didn't have this phrase back in the day, but he was emotionally dysregulated y'all. Okay. Like he really could not control himself very, very well. Somebody should have intervened in his life a long time ago. They didn't. And this is where he, uh, he ended up. Not only that, but like notice that when he's recounting this story of killing the boy man, um, he's not even trying to justify it. Instead, he's simply celebrating it. Like he, he's not like, I didn't have a choice. I didn't want to please God forgive me. I mean, I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of this for the rest of my life. No, he's like, yeah, I struck him down. That's what I do. Cause I'm little mech, right? He's celebrating. He's celebrating this terrible thing that he's done. He wrote this, this, um, this little, I call it a speech, but in reality, it's a poem or a song. He wrote a song about killing a teenage boy in a fist fight. And then he walked around singing it like it made him awesome or something. Can you imagine somebody like that? You're like, what? And then you kind of have to ask the question, why, why is he singing this song to his wives? Like maybe he's just bragging, right? He's like, yeah, girls, I'm a bad boy. I mean, maybe, but he might also be like, Adan Zilha, don't cross me. Because you know what happens to people who cross me. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's hard not to at least consider that that's what he has in mind. All right. So we get this sense that he is this greedy guy. He takes more than anybody else has ever thought to be entitled to. He, he doesn't respond proportionately to life circumstances, the things that are going on. Then in the, in the closing line of this song, in verse 24, he exalts himself alongside the infamy of his grandfather, Cain, right? So I told you we needed to know kind of the history there because his great-great-granddaddy is important to how his life played out. If you're not familiar with the story of Cain, I'm going to just rehash it for you briefly. We're not going to read the scripture, but you can check it out yourself um, earlier in the same chapter, Genesis chapter number four. So Adam and Eve have two sons. They have Cain, the older, and 
and Abel the younger. As they grow up, there's a lot of sibling rivalry and jealousy between the two. One day it boils over to the point that Cain, the older boy, ends up taking the life of his younger brother, Abel. God confronts him. He's like, what have you done? And the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. And Cain is like, well, it's kind of not my fault. He really ticked me off. And God's like, that's no excuse. And so he, he pronounces, God pronounces a, a curse on Cain. And he says, I'm going to drive you out from your family. In fact, I'm going to drive you out from the presence of the Lord. You're going to live by yourself now for the arrogance of taking somebody else's life. I gave your brother life and you chose to take it. And as a result, you're going to live outside the protection and relationship of both family and me, your creator. Cain is like, oh my gosh, God, no, if you send me out like that and I'm, I'm living uh, away from the protection of my, my family, my community and you're not going to be with me. The first people that meet me, the first wild animal that I come across is going to kill me because I'm all alone and I have no protection. And so God says, listen, I I know what you've done is terrible, but I'm going to give you a little symbol of my favor or my mercy to you. And although you are going to be punished for what you've done, he says, I'm going to put a mark on you. Now, we don't know what the mark is. The Bible never says any attempt to say, well, maybe the mark was this or that is pure speculation and it's probably wrong. God says, I'm going to put some kind of mark on you. We don't know what it is. And anybody who sees that mark will know that if they harm you, I will avenge that harm seven times over. That's what God says. So later on, when uh, uh, Lamech is boasting and bragging, and he's saying, if somebody harms Cain seven times, you better believe that God is going to get them back 70 times seven, because that's how much more awesome I am than my great grandpa. Rather than viewing Cain's story as a warning, rather than viewing it as something terrible and tragic, something that he should distance himself from and not follow in that same pattern. Instead, Cain is like, I'm not just, I mean, Lamech is like, I'm not just like Cain. I'm better than Cain. I'm bigger than Cain. I'm stronger than Cain. I'm more infamous than Cain. I got more respect than Cain. People won't mess with me like they messed with Cain. He really puffs himself up here in the most insane way. Not only that, but he na- he's got three kids. He did that weird thing that some of you parents do. Um, I, I'm not a dad, so I don't get this. But when you all you start all your kids' names with the first letter, how do you ever keep them straight? I would be forever saying the wrong name, or you make them rhyme. Uh, he did both, okay, because he's that arrogant. So he has three kids. He has J-Ball, Jewball, and Two-Ball. <laughs> Two-Ball Kane. Yeah, we're just going to move on. Two-Ball Kane. He names, he gives the nickname or the middle name of his third son after his murderous great-grandfather, the most infamous guy that had ever lived in history, and he names his son after him. Like, Lamech is on another level, you guys. This is an ugly dude with an ugly sense of self and an ugly relationship to the people that were around him. I mean, it's just, probably the best way I could put it is that Lamech was a vulgar, violent, and vengeful man. If we were just going to describe him, he was vulgar, he was violent, and he was vengeful. Now, there's actually another little bit of irony here in that the name Lamech in Hebrew means powerful or strong. Lamech was neither. For all of his physical strength, 
for all of his bravado and braggadocio, for all of his boasts and for all the things that he had done in truth, he was a weak man that was a slave to his emotions that couldn't possibly say no to his own internal desires. He lived according to his base nature. He was not strong. He was not powerful. If he were truly strong, then he would have learned humility and restraint. If he were truly strong, then he would have known that he didn't need two wives, but he would have had the self-denial that allowed him to commit to one for the rest of his life. He would have been able to temper his temper. He would have been a life giver and not a death bringer. Lamech represents manhood at its worst. Like the very worst that, that particularly us men, some of you ladies are like this too. The very worst in which we think that we are the masters of the universe. We can say and do whatever we want. And if it hurts somebody else, then, oh, well, that's their problem, not my problem. I am the alpha. I'm going to be on top. And that means people got to be beneath me. This is the worst of humanity writ large, made very obvious and evident. It's the same toxic picture of particularly masculinity that gets held up today. We're told that, you know, real men are defined by their muscles, their money, and their mating. Those are the, it's like, if you want to be a man, that's what you got to promote. That's what you got to project to the world around you. But listen, that's a childish picture of what makes a man. In fact, it's the same childish, superficial, and damaging picture that Lamech bought into 5,000 years ago. Isn't it wild? This Lamech story was 5,000 thousand years ago, and we're still struggling with the same impulses that he did. Can I remind you of what Jesus said? Matthew chapter number five, verse five, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, in the end, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. It's not the powerful. It's not the bros who can bench three hundred. It's not the guys who sleep with 40 women. It's not the guys who have all the money. It's not the guys who carry the titles. It's not the guys with the square jaw. It's not. It's the guys who talk like that. No, it's, it's literally <laughs> making myself feel good. Today. Um, according to Jesus, the people who will ultimately be in control are the ones who are not fighting for control right now. The meek will inherit the earth. Lamech wanted to conquer the earth. Some of you guys are still in that conquering mindset. You want to conquer everyone and everything around you. Go for it. You're going to leave a trail of devastation in your wake. Everybody's going to hate you. You're going to live in infamy and not leave a legacy behind that anybody wants to be a part of. We were not meant to conquer the earth. We were meant to inherit the earth. You know why? Because the one who actually owns the earth is God himself. So if you want to conquer the earth, who you got to conquer? Good luck. (laughs) No, no. Rather than conquering the earth, you can inherit the earth. You You don't have to try to take it by force. Rather, you trust the father to give it to you as a gift. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Now you say, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to be meek. Meekness is weakness. I get it. Meekness is not one of those qualities that you put into your Tinder bio. But fellas, let me tell you why meekness is important. Let me tell you why meekness is valuable. Let me tell you why you should pursue meekness. It's because you don't know what meekness really is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. That's, that's what it means to be meek. It doesn't mean to be a wuss. It means that you are in control of your emotions rather than letting your emotions control you. 
It means when there is uh, an impulse inside of you to lash out and to say something hurtful, you're like, no, 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 I don't have to do that. I want to do it, but I'm not gonna because I know it's not a good thing. When you want to throw punches, you don't. When you want to smash, when you want to put other people down, when you want to crush, when you want to fight, you just choose a different way. That's what meekness is. It's not that you don't have the power to do those things. It's rather you're in control of the impulses rather than letting those impulses end up controlling you. A truly powerful man is not the one who can win in a bar fight, but the one who has the strength to turn the other cheek. A truly powerful man is not the one who can sleep with dozens of women, but the one who can remain faithful to the wife of his youth. A truly powerful man is not the one who flashes his wealth and his accomplishments, but instead uses his resources and station for the good of those around him. Do you understand? Genuine alphas do not spend the majority of their time trying to convince the world that they're not betas. Like we've got guys that are constantly trying to prove themselves and they're pointing to all the wrong qualities and characteristics, at least as far as God's kingdom goes. The things that our world says make you strong actually make you weak. The things that the world says will, will cause you to live a legacy and develop a reputation. Those are all the things that are gonna undermine you rather than build you up. Okay, we need to zoom out just a little bit, all right? I told you that um, in order to understand Lamech's lineage, I mean, uh, in order to get the full story, you've got to understand Lamech's lineage here. And that's because Lamech is not just this cautionary tale as an individual. Actually, God is trying to paint a bigger picture. He's trying to make a bigger point about families and communities, um, not just this one like really ridiculous man, okay? So uh, I, I've kind of put um, Lamech's like family tree here. Again, we already read this. It's not like you don't need to know all the details or anything. I just want to point out one little, I think, very critical detail here. If we begin with Adam and Eve and we work our way down until we get to Lamech, we find out that Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam and Eve. Now, um, People can get really hung up, I think, to an unhealthy degree on numerology in the Bible, right? Like every number has a hidden meaning and all those things. But there are certain numbers that do carry a a specific meaning. Seven is one of those kind of special numbers that you see often representing the same concept from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. You guys have any ideas what the number seven means in the Bible? It's the number of? fullness or completion. Oh, you guys. Oh, I put it up there. Dang it, man. I am really messing myself up today. What? Okay. Yes. You guys are so smart. I don't know where you came up with that. All right. Now I know in the next two services, don't ask dumb questions. Okay. All right. Yes, it represents fullness. And here's why. Like, I want you to think, okay, there were seven days of creation. That's the fullness of creation on the cross. How many statements did Jesus make? Seven. In the book of John, how many I am statements did Jesus make? Seven. In the book of Revelation, how many uh, scrolls, bowls, and trumpet judgments are there? Seven of each. Seven is the number of completion or fullness. And the reason why is that in Hebrew, they're spelled using the exact same consonants in the exact same order, okay? So uh, if you look here, we see on the right-hand side, the word fullness. If you look on the left, you see the word seven, and they're spelled basically with the exact same letters, just a few dots in different places. Hebrew, the dots are the vowels. They're the 
breath sounds, all right? So you can see how seven in fullness came to be associated based on the words and also the way that sevens are used throughout the scripture. So if that's all true, and I absolutely believe that it is, Adam and Eve are the first generation. And in generation one, they disobey God by breaking his command. By the time we get to the second generation, we've moved on from one simple rule breaking to, uh, you know, like, um, what's the word? Um, uh, manslaughter, right? It's like in one generation, we went from a simple rule violation to manslaughter. Insert Ron Burgundy saying, boy, that escalated quickly, right? It's just like, whoa. And then within seven generations, we've moved on. And now we have this guy named Lamech, who's the polygamous, murderous, godless king of his own tiny empire. Wow. It took seven generations for us to get that far. Lamech represents the fullness or completion of people who are living outside of God's presence. That's it. Let us go long enough. Let us carry our sinfulness to its furthest end. And we'll be Lamech. We'll be proud and arrogant. We'll be self-sufficient. We'll use other people to meet our own needs. We'll enact violence on one another in hopes to get what we want in life. Lamech represents the fullness of people who live, who dwell outside of God's presence and his favor. Now listen, it's really easy to view Lamech as a cartoon. Like he's so obnoxious. He's so far out there that you're like, he's, he's a myth. He's a caricature. He, I can't really relate to this guy. Cause like, I know I'm not that. Okay. I understand that, but there's the truth here. And the truth is there is a little Lamech in all of us. Every single one of us shares some of the attitudes, at least, that this dude did. Sure, we all struggle with ego and pride and self-reliance. But what I'm talking about is more specific than any of that. I wonder if as we were reading the text, your ears perked up just the tiniest bit when Lamech said, if... Cain would get vengeance seven times over. I would for sure get vengeance 70 times seven over. Did your ears perk up a little bit at that? Some of you guys who are Bible nerds did. Because you know that that numeric phrase, 70 times seven, is not the only time that occurs in the scripture. It occurs in one other place, all the way in the New Testament. And it was spoken by the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter number 18 verses will be here on the screen because I need you to see this. One day, Peter, Jesus's like guy, best friend, closest guy, closest disciple, comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times. Why did he choose seven? Was it arbitrary? No, seven is the number of fullness or completion. He chose seven because he's like, that's the, that's the complete total of times that I should reasonably be expected to forgive somebody that wrongs me. Somebody bruises me. If they strike me, I know I'm not supposed to smack them dead in the moment, but maybe on the eighth or ninth time, it would be okay, right? That's reasonable. How many times should I forgive somebody who sins against me? Up to seven times? And then Jesus answered and says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. It's not a coincidence 
that Jesus uses the exact same phrase, but it's inverted from the way it occurs first in the scripture. The first time we hear that phrase, we have a human being who refuses to forgive this little man boy that wronged him. He refuses to let it go. He continues to hold a grudge and say he deserves everything he got. And and we get the sense that he would continue 490 times, that's 70 times, 490 times he would have done the same thing again. And Jesus says, hey guys, I'm calling you to a different way of living. One in which you don't get revenge 490 times, but instead you extend grace and forgiveness 490 times. Oh, but Jesus, like you don't understand. They've really hurt me. They, they said some terrible things and I don't want to forgive them. I get it. That's true. But independent of what they may have done, we are called to extend grace and forgiveness to them. Now, I always want to be clear anytime I talk about forgiveness, that forgiveness and reconciliation may be two different things that you can forgive somebody without reconciling to them. So like if, if you've ever been, you know, in an abusive relationship, I 100% believe that you should forgive your abuser, not for their sake, for your sake. I am not telling you that you need to reconcile then go back to living together. No, no, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. The Bible does not command that. You don't have to do that. If you have a friend that's hurt you, it doesn't mean that you guys have to become besties again and go out for brunch every Saturday. Like instead, forgiveness is the releasing of an offense. The, 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 um, the willingness to say, I'm not going to hold you accountable anymore. I'm going to let go of the pain and the hurt and my desire for revenge and my hope that you get what's coming to you. I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to wish you the best. Now, you might come back together in relationship and you might never see each other again. Forgiveness exists independent of reconciliation. Why would we do this? Like, why? Why? Well, I mean, I think there are a few reasons. One is, A, because Jesus commands it. And if I call him Lord, I got to do what he says. It's kind of a package deal. But another reason is that we see in Lamech what happens when people refuse to do that, when they do the opposite of what Jesus calls us to. Do you know, Lamech, so uh, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Let's put, can we put the, um, can we put the uh, family tree back on the screen for just a moment? Adam and Eve, they have two two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel. Later, after Cain is cast out, Seth is born. He's the third son. And as far as we know, the final son of Adam and Eve. And Seth goes on and he has kids and grandkids. And the generations go and go and go and go for who knows how many different generations until eventually Jesus himself was born from Seth's line. Do you know that after Lamech, Cain's line is never mentioned again in the scripture? They're wiped out. They die off. They're like a severed root. They can't grow. They can't flourish. They can't bear anything further in the future. This is what happens when we choose to live outside of God's presence in his command. Eventually we wither and die. Everything we build withers and dies. We are left with nothing. However, when we choose to live under God's command, when we choose to live within his presence, we find fullness, we find fruitfulness, and eventually we find salvation in Christ as well. Why why would we choose to forgive somebody 490 times? Because Jesus has forgiven us 
70 times 7 times 490 times. I, I can't even count the number of times God has forgiven me for the, the, the sinful things I've done, for the terrible ways that I've treated people, for the selfish ways in which, I, in which I've acted, for the punches that I've thrown, for the things that I've stolen, for the stuff I've coveted. Like, I can't even begin to count the number of times God has forgiven me. So if God in Christ has forgiven me hundreds of times over, then I have to be willing to at least try to extend that level of forgiveness to those around me as well. This is the sort of approach to ourselves and others that will bring life and flourishing. It will bring joy. It will bring community, friendship, love, all of those things that we're so desperately seeking. I told you a moment ago, the world tends to hold up qualities and characteristics that in the end leave you empty and alone. But God offers us a way forward that leaves us full and surrounded by people who love us, including our heavenly father himself. God, I pray today that you would just... um illuminate your truth in our heart. I pray, God, that we would follow the example of Christ and not the example of Lamech. That, Lord, um, we would see how often and how fully you forgive us. And, God, we would do everything we can to release our offenses and grudges and forgive the people uh, that have taken advantage of us or hurt us. I pray, God, that we would dwell in your presence and that, God, we would follow your ways and that you would use us to bring about goodness and flourishing and life to the world around us. And God, I pray in this moment for anyone that's here and they've never received forgiveness from you for the things that they've done. And I just pray, God, that they would cry out to you just in prayer in their own hearts and they would ask you to forgive them and God to give them a fresh start. I know that you will because you love us and you want us to experience life and life overflowing. We thank you so much for these two examples and I pray, God, that you would help us to live them out. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.